What's up, listeners? This is episode 63 of the one and only podcast focused on blockchain and healthcare, Health Unchained. Before I introduce our guest, I would just like to thank all the healthcare professionals and essential workers who are helping to maintain the function of our society. Let's not take for granted the water, food, sanitation services, electricity, and internet that we benefit from every day. Additionally, I think it's important to appreciate all the people who are working at home helping to support our knowledge-based information economy. We appreciate all who support these services and make our isolated lives a little bit more convenient. On this show, our guest is Corey Tadara, Senior Product Manager at Digital Asset. I first learned about Corey's work while he was working at Hashed Health. I would watch his webinars describing how blockchain could improve the healthcare industry, But before this interview, I didn't know much about Corey's background in religious and cultural academic work. So that was an interesting perspective to hear about towards the end of the episode. One commonality that I do see with decentralized ledger technology professionals is their multifaceted interests in subjects outside of business and technology. The paradigm shift to a blockchain-oriented world will require more than business people and technologists. We talked about the effects of COVID-19 on the healthcare system, the development of DAML, and how healthcare stakeholders feel about all these new technologies. DAML is a completely open source programming language for writing distributed application and has a well-supported SDK available on DAML.com. That's D-A-M-L.com. I really enjoyed my conversation with Corey and I hope you do too. Remember, the Health Unchained podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not providing any sort of legal, financial, or medical advice. Please do your own research and due diligence before making any important decisions related to these matters. And now, let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Mr. Corey Todaro, Senior Product Manager at Digital Asset where he helps to lead the development of a smart contract modeling language called DAML. Corey also spent a few years at Hashed Health, which was one of the earliest companies actually trying to bring blockchain technology to healthcare. So Corey, welcome to the show. Tell us where you're joining us from today. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I, I live and work out of Nashville, Tennessee. Awesome. Hey, Corey, I think it'd be great to start off with a little bit about your background, what you've worked on throughout your career. Sure. Uh, it's a, a long and twisted path. Um, I've done a lot of different things in, in, in my careers. Um, uh, 20 years ago, I was an academic uh, in history. I was doing PhD work at the University of Chicago's Divinity School with a focus on third century Christianity in Egypt and Syria, uh, Armenia, <laughs> parts of the Near East. Um, that's quickly really fell out of academia. <laughs> huh. uh, and I, I did a decade of work in actually in education, in curricular design and professional development training with teachers. Um, the content of that curricula is interesting. I worked for an educational foundation on collective violence, identity, and choice making. Um, and that uh, had a radical career shift uh, in 2008, like a lot of people did. 
uh, seeing echoes of some of that today. Uh, but uh, out of that recession, I, I fell into healthcare, um, mostly owing to a very you know quixotic and uh, amazing person um, who uh, was the CEO of a hospital corporation um, and perhaps the finest natural business person I've ever met in my life. Uh, but he hired me because he said, you sound like a smart guy and you should come work with me. And I was put in steadily in strategy and innovation inside a hospital corporation. Um, That's awesome. Who was that? Just curious. Uh, that was, it was Charlie Martin. Um, he was the CEO of Vanguard Health Systems at that time. Um, we were acquired by Tenant Health Corp in 2013. But from uh, 2008 to 2013, I worked uh, um, for Vanguard. And I, um, it was a really interesting experience because um, I had zero experience in healthcare except, you know, as a, as a patient. And so I really approached my work um, looking at the inside of a hospital corporation and hospital operations um, at our market level, um, constantly comparing it to what I somehow expected in my head of how hospitals ought to run. Um, and so it was a real, real education. <laughs> I'm sure you get to see the, you know, how revenue yes. cycle works and then clinical operations. And Absolutely. All that. Yeah, I was constantly, you know, surprised. Healthcare has a you know mystique of expertise and precision, um, surgeons and, and robotic sure. arms and things like that. And you see, seeing how the sausage gets made inside any kind of industry really is, is it can be eye opening. And it was eye opening in healthcare. And at that time, the Affordable Care Act had just passed, and I was doing a lot of work um, in things that there were you know there wasn't a lot of expertise in. Um, so I did a lot of my uh, early work in looking at uh, value-based programs and alternative payment models and what has to adapt inside healthcare systems in order to operationalize those things. Not only from a you know basic infrastructure, how do we collect clinical data, combine it with claims and billing information, but also how what kind of information do our physician practices need um, to our affiliated physicians? How do we manage that? Uh, how do we essentially start to duct tape together systems? which were never designed to really interoperate with each other in order to meet the unique data, um, timing and payment requirements around value-based care. Um, I always remember, never forget it, we were in, we did a demonstration project with CMS for something called the ACE, ACE demonstration project, the acute care episode. It was one of the early episode-based payment um, um, pilots being done by CMS. And we were doing it for cardiac and ortho procedures in our San Antonio market. And, uh, you know, we had an agreement with the physicians to pay them bonuses. Instead of annually, we pay them monthly. Uh, it, was, it was a nice incentive for the physicians to, uh, to meet the quality standards uh, of the pilot program. But in order to make those payments, we had to have uh, quality level information um, on a 28-day cycle. And CMS was not prepared to give that to us. And we actually worked it out where they would burn a CD-ROM, remember those, of, of quality data and FedEx it to us overnight. Uh, in order for us to get the data to cut the checks to the physicians uh, to meet our end of the bargain as a hospital um, with the participating physicians in the program. And, you know, stuff like that is is all over healthcare. Uh, you know, these kinds of wonky workarounds and duct tape, um, you know, uh, systems together. And so from there, um, I started getting more and more involved in, in healthcare technology. Uh, I did some time um, as a VC in the health IT space. Um, so really looking at how to evaluate technology, looking at the, uh, the distinct needs of hospital corporations and the different stakeholders within healthcare, um, payers, uh, pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, and understanding their appetite uh, for certain types of innovation. And it was in that role where I was really evaluating technology um, that I finally started to understand what blockchain was about. Yeah. And, um, and from there, it got, it, it got very fast. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, you're talking about some of the 
the complexities and issues with our current healthcare system. I think what's happening now with the COVID-19 pandemic is all those weak points are they have a spotlight on them now. So it's becoming even more serious and more important for us to figure it out. And um, mm-hmm. I personally think, and you know, many of my guests on the show think that blockchain has a role to play to help with you know addressing a lot of these issues. You know, whether it's privacy preserving technology or building smart contracts, so you don't have to spend three to four months collecting payments from some entity. Um, mm-hmm. So I hear you. So, you know, what are your thoughts on what's happening now with the whole COVID nineteen crisis? I know that's a very vague question, but what is like your first? Sure. Thought. Um, my first thought is like like a lot of industries, healthcare. The, the crisis is revealing how healthcare is over optimized. Um, to what do you mean a over optimized, yeah. It is built. Um, it's just like the supply chains that are being disrupted because they're too just in time. Ah, I see. Um, <laughs> you know those optimized supply chains where you know you try to minimize inventory holding. Um, to, to until the moment you're going to use it. And so it's not delivered until the moment you need it. Well, suddenly you need 20 of them. And, you know, the system is only optimized to give you one. Um, in the same way, healthcare is over-optimized to the payment system. Um, hospitals are really dependent upon, um, you know, elective procedures. Um, and all of those have just turned off like a spigot. Um, and so the revenue generation for hospitals is has fallen off a cliff. Um, payers are in a slightly new landscape, although I think they're going to be fine um, to a large extent. Of course, pharmaceutical companies, you know, the, the eyes of the world are turned on them to please help us get out of this because we're realizing that, you know, this is such a novel, you know, it's a novel virus and that has characteristics we don't fully understand yet. And, and the only real way we're going to get out of, of having to slow down the economy and, and, and practice social distancing is, is a pharmaceutical solution um, that includes testing, um, that includes uh, better treatments, and hopefully, ultimately, a vaccine, um, which will allow us to, uh, to fully cope with the presence of this, of this virus in our environment uh, from here on out. Um, and so great opportunity for pharma. Uh, but of course, you know, the time constraints um, and the, uh, the, the net sort of global effort to, to, to help produce this is, is got to be really shocking uh, and a change from everyday behavior. Absolutely. Um, so I know you were at Hashed Health for a while, and I think, you know, I watched many of your webinars. I've seen you talk at conferences. So, you know, you're definitely an educator. So I appreciate all the work you do there. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, you know, what your role was at Hashed Health, just a bit. And then I kind of want to get into, you know, your work designing decentralized ledger technology solutions in the healthcare industry. Great. Yeah, Hashed was a, was a great experience for me. Um, it was, you know, very small startup. Uh, it was four of us, I think, at the beginning uh, in late 2016, uh, early 2017. My role evolved into what we called the CTO. Uh, I'm not I mean, like a lot of startups, you take titles that sure. may or may not reflect your background. Um, but, you know, you do the job that's in front of you. Um, in my job, <laughs> or the job I kind of fell into was really trying to digest um, the complexities of these technologies uh, that we call blockchain and understand how they map well um, to the, uh, the regulatory constraints and uh, some of the business issues and alignment issues that are present in healthcare, not only in the U.S., but in, in, in lots of countries around the world where, where the setting uh, varies um, to a greater or lesser extent, depending upon their payment systems and how uh, you know, care delivery is organized. Uh, but I spent a tremendous amount of time just drinking from the fire hose, understanding how these technologies work. I will never forget, and I, I, I sort of advised everyone I knew to read it at the time, uh, there was a, an FAQ by Vitalik 
Buterin, uh, one of the co-creators of Ethereum. It was an FAQ on scaling. And it sounds like something easy to read. You know, it's an FAQ. It, it was 40 pages. There were footnotes all over the place to projects I had never heard of, Mimble, Wimble, and uh, you know, trusted off-chain compute. And it was like a graduate course on, on cryptography, and uh, multi-party, you know, alignment, incentive structures, contract theory. It was the deepest document I've ever read in my life up to that point. And um, taking that and then understanding, okay, well, how do we, uh, you know, at Hash, how does anybody create a business out of this um, is, is the hardest question. And it's one I still don't necessarily have a good answer to. So I'll characterize my time at Hashed Health as a, as a time of experimentation. Uh, getting hands on with some of the technology. I remember we we worked with Fabric pre you know 1.0. Um, we worked with Sawtooth at the time. We built some uh, Solidity contracts, Ethereum contracts, trying to understand privacy characteristics and performance characteristics and just how hard it is or easy it is to model certain processes in our head um, in in into workable code for this technology. I don't have any easier answers on you know oh there's a clear path to building a solution. Uh, my time there exposed a lot of what I think are gaps in the ecosystem tooling. And and one of the reasons I moved to DA, um, I'm not only was I a user of DAML uh, going back to 2018 and really fell in love with it as a language, and I could talk a little bit more about that later, but DA was focused on filling these gaps. In, I mean, they're not you know rocket science, they're practical uh, gaps in, in the application infrastructure. Um, that is going to enable companies and enterprises to really utilize the technology um, instead of, you know, thinking about how transformed industries will be. What are their practical needs and concerns today? And so that's everything from API infrastructures and how do you integrate messaging schemas into smart contracts, things like that. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I was reading up on DAML a little bit. And what's the unique proposition for DAML compared to other smart contracting languages like Solidity, Sure. It's not a general purpose programming language. It's, it's probably it's the easiest characteristic to talk about. It's um, specific to business logic, right? That's the idea here. It's, it's it is. Now, you know, Solidity is not necessarily a general purpose programming language. I mean, it is for the for the computer that is Ethereum, for the EVM, although it's based on Java. And so it's it, it inherits many of the characteristics of, of Java in that respect uh, of being a general purpose programming language. It was designed to model and represent safely and securely multi-party business processes. Um, on a technical level, it is what we call a strongly typed language, which means that the all the data elements that you put into a smart contract and track are typed strongly. Uh, it's an integer. It's a string. Um, a lot of errors in computer programming languages come from when the compiler misunderstands what kind of data this is and how it should behave. And so a strongly typed language enforces very strict rules on how data types can behave and how they can evolve over time or not evolve over time, as the case may be. Um, I'm speaking a little bit out of my depth there as I'm not a computer scientist. Uh, but it represents at a very basic language in the uh, primitives in the language business par uh, processes. So party is, is a native word in the language. You identify parties. You identify choices that parties can exercise um, at a given moment in time. Those choices can have preconditions uh, and they can have very definite effects that are defined in the language. So my exercising a choice could close off our contract and archive it. And so no more choices can be exercised on it at all. Or my choices can keep the, the contract alive, but change the precondition sets that enable other kinds of choices that could be made. We can identify stakeholders and observers by those words. 
Um, and so when you read a DAML contract, you're reading about parties and what parties are able to do and the authorization requirements that are necessary uh, to execute those choices um, that are made. And so it's, it, it's at the right level of abstraction compared to a general purpose programming language whose abstraction layer is more closer to the computer, closer to the compiler and not the business level. Mm -hmm. And so DAML sits at a higher level of abstraction, closer to the business layer, rather than the, what we call the persistence layer or the database layer, the blockchain. Um, and so that it's readable by a wide variety of people, not only developers, of course, who, who understand DAML, but business, uh, business line unit owners, lawyers, importantly, um, the, the, the ability to audit a DAML contract from a legal perspective is relatively trivial. That is not true of a solidity contract in which auditing is a very specialized function, which a lot of organizations have been developing a competence in. I, I know consensus does a lot of work in, in how to audit a solidity contract to make sure it behaves the way it ought to behave or the way it was envisioned to behave. Where from DAML, um, you know, any subject matter expert in, in the business field in which that, da that DAML contract is modeling can understand what's going on inside that contract. They don't need to understand uh, strict typing uh, at the compiler level. They need to be able to read it, and it's readable uh, from a human perspective. And so it's at the right level of abstraction, and it's very secure from a language perspective uh, in that it enforces um, data type rules. But it also enforces kind of basic business rules. For example, in DAML, you can never be put into an obligable position without your consent without your authorization, without your signing. If, if you write a contract that attempts to do that, it won't compile. It will not run on the DAML runtime. And so it enforces very basic core business practices around, around agreements, around contracts, and around workflows um, that are native to the way we think about business. And so in that way, it's a language that's designed for multi-party businesses. It's not a language designed to write any program you want. It was custom made specifically for this field. And that's what really sets DAML apart. Yeah, another thing that's really unique, or I think cool about it is it is open source too, so you can see all the code behind Absolutely. it. So I think developers, um, you know, I looked into the SDK kit, it's available for download. You guys have a pretty good set of documentation online. So kudos to you, that's very important to, you know, have your community Absolutely. actually use the software. Um, but in addition to like the actual coding and programming and the technical side of things, Another component of blockchain and decentralized ledger technology is the governance around those multiple parties, right? So over your years of working in blockchain, what are some governance best practices that you've picked up as prerequisites for building a network that will be successful? Yeah, the governance is a really interesting question, as is the larger question around consortia, mm -hmm. um, which yeah, is kind of the, where healthcare is in their thinking. I mean, I think that the, the general principle of governance um, for me, and this gets to, I know you, you've asked some questions around misconceptions around blockchain. I don't think governance is anything necessarily special. I don't think it's something separate from the way that um, successful enterprises manage business and partner development. That's really what multi-party contracts and workflows are about. I understand who who you are, who I am, what, what we do for each other, and I think one of the best practices of governance is do not expect your other parties and do not demand that they act outside their interests. But that's true of contract negotiation. It's true of business development. And so these core competencies that enterprises have, I think, are, are, are core to the way we think about how to deploy multi-party technology in the form of blockchain and DLT. Um, you know, if, if the project is very, um, what I'll call ambitious in scope, sort of 
redesigning the rules of an industry, then I think a lot more conversation needs to take place. Uh, but those are the kinds of projects that I'm not normally involved in. And I never advocate that that's where people start either, uh, because it's, you know, that's, that's like a Sistine Chapel scale project of remaking yeah. our vision of the world instead of uh, starting where, where we're familiar and where we have well-defined business problems. Um, and so I think those that kind of governance is is important. Now, what that can lead to, though, is the notion that the only thing this technology can do is really help us with non-competitive business cases. Uh, you know, I've uh, I've seen that, and that's a stated preference exactly uh, from the Synaptic Health Alliance in healthcare. That's Optum, uh, Humana, um, at a number of others, um, and, and I've heard the, the leaders of of Synaptic mention that. You know, our our use cases will initially be at least initially be non-competitive, non-sensitive information. That's a great place to start, but that's. Um, I, I don't want us to become overfixated with that. That this technology is only suitable for those kinds of use cases. That technology is uh, does influence how you build um, solutions, depending upon privacy, depending upon sensitive business information. But that's more about the characteristics of of the of the uh, persistence technology, what kind of blockchain you're using. Um, but that's not an issue necessarily of governance or how we organize to do business, which is why I think governance is all about. Uh, but there do need to be rules about how do we sign off on smart contracts? How do we review them? How do we authorize updates of these, um, whether that's a technical function or whether that's a business function uh, or both? Um, you know, these kinds of issues are, are very important uh, from, from, a, from a legal and compliance perspective. But again, I think enterprises have a wealth of expertise in this from a compliance uh, perspective, from a legal perspective and from a business development perspective. Yeah, and I think the way I see it is these smart contracts enable existing traditional contracts to be better enforced in a way it just executes the contracts automatically you don't have to depend on someone to click a button or do something um there's there's a there's a benefit to that but there's also a risk to that because if you write a smart contract where there's some sort of gap in the way it does execute or let's say you didn't account for some sort of unforeseen event happening you can still Mm -hmm. have that contract execute but maybe it was unintended or something so there's there's a real high level of thought that goes into these smart contracts. And I think that's why, um, you know, demo so cool is because you have this ability to read the, you know, the business logic, anyone can do it, um, or anyone with the skills can do it. Um, so that's interesting to me. Yeah, I was, I was speaking, um, just, uh, this year, earlier this year to a, a law school class at, at Vanderbilt, uh, university, um, good friend of mine, Kristen Johns teaches a, a great, uh, blockchain legal class there. But, you know, I asked the, the group of law students, you're going to be asked in the future, no doubt, to be able to evaluate contract code, whether that smart contract or blockchain related or not. I mean, increasingly, legal tech is accelerating and um, they need to be prepared uh, for reading that and being able to advise uh, either their client or their, you know, or their enterprise, uh, whether or not the contract represents um, what we think it represents and um, what kind of guarantees do we have that it's going to behave in that way. Interesting. Have you heard of the project, the Limited Liability Autonomous Organization, the LAO? That recently, I think it was. No, I haven't heard of the LAO. I've heard of a, you know, lots of AOs going back to the DAO, but uh, the LAO is a, a really a new one, and I think Open Law is the one that you know helped start that. Um, yeah, they had like a a fundraise very recently. Very cool. I remember the days in 2015, 2016, where I could feel like I was on top of a lot of different things. And that's becoming less true over time. There's like 
It's hard to keep track. grown so radically. Yeah, and I've just given up. I mean, I have to focus on what I have to focus on. Uh, but it's always great to hear about projects that you know come out. They're coming out of the blue for me, but uh, enough for for those people who get to spend more time uh, canvassing the ecosystem. So in some ways, I'm jealous, but that's exciting. No, for sure. Like I can't even keep up with all the healthcare blockchain stuff, <laughs> let alone the just blockchain industry in general. Um, mm-hmm. But it's exciting, definitely. I think you sort of addressed this. What are the biggest misconceptions of blockchain? <laughs> Uh, when you speak with various healthcare executives? Yeah. Um, I, I touched on it briefly, but let me back up a little bit. I, I think I think the, the misconceptions are evol- have evolved, uh, as they always will, and as I hope they will. You know, three years ago, it was, this is Bitcoin, right? We're talking about cryptocurrency. And so the notion of, no, 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 you know, blockchains can be composed for business. They don't necessarily have to interact with cryptocurrency environments or the open open public chains. That was, you know, one misconception. I think now in terms of healthcare, um, mm-hmm. the misconception is that it's got to be a consortium-based project, hmm. that consortium-based projects are the way to do blockchain. And I think if you look, um, and what's fascinating from my position um, working at Digital Asset, which has done a tremendous amount of work in, in, in financial services, in capital markets, is seeing the evolution of that industry um, compared to healthcare. And it's easy to say healthcare is kind of behind. It is behind by a number of years from financial services. They got involved in blockchain a lot earlier. You know, it's it's kind of a, a, a tighter correspondence between financial services work and what the original cryptocurrency chains do um, around, you know, payment, uh, settlement, uh, those kinds of issues. So you saw the financial services industry go through a consortium phase. I mean, I don't know if people, if people remember R3 used to be a consortium, not a company that was backing Enterprise Corda. Hmm. Uh, in fact, there was no Corda at the time, uh, but it was a consortium of banks. And who all got together to to learn and to discuss and to to do pilot projects, etc. And eventually, um, it outlived. And like a lot of consortia do, they kind of outlive uh, their usefulness. Everyone is educated. Everyone understands at least um, their appetite for the technology and what they might want to do with it. Um, and so, when I look at financial services today, and especially capital markets, there's a lot of productization. Um, large entities are realizing. I don't need to build a, a consortium to have a network of counterparties. My everyday business is nothing but a, a set of counterparties um, who are interacting with each other through me, with me, I with others. And so where can we bring the benefits of DLT and smart contracts to those everyday interactions um, is in, and in the sense of let's build a product, let's build a service offering for that constituency that's already assembled. Um, healthcare um, is still in the notion of we've got to organize everybody together. I need counterparties. And so I don't want to build something if nobody else is going to be on the other side of that. Um, but I think the consortium track in some ways misdirects our attention. It, mix, it, it focuses on projects that are incredibly large and incredibly ambitious uh, in the sense of you're trying to manage industry transformation from the top down. And I think a lot of innovation is iterative and from the bottom up. Hmm. And so I think a lot of too much effort is going into how we can reorganize the entire industry. Not that that's not a a noble project. Um, I just think it's too large for any of us to handle. Um, And I think if we move faster and more iteratively on smaller scale projects, we will come to see the real innovation of this technology in a practical sense. And maybe set the set the table for some of these larger, more ambitious projects. That's the same pattern that we saw with the internet, the same pattern we saw with the evolution of database technology. 
Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's fundamentally true here. So I'm, I'm very happy that there are consortia operating today, but I think that there's a fundamental misconception that when I go in and talk about blockchain with an industry, they want to know, okay, well, who do you got with you? What consortium are we joining? What projects are they working on, et cetera? So, so that's really interesting. So when I think of these consortia, I think of projects that try to help with interoperability, whether it's provider credentialing information that need to be shared mm-hmm. or um, patient data potentially in the future. So I'm trying to understand what kind of examples would you give? Because I know there's a lot of healthcare blockchain startups. So in a way, they're trying to start from the bottom and iterate their way up and connect. Um, but, you know, that's come with mixed success at this point, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so what sort yep. of examples or use cases are you referring to? Well, you know, interoperability, uh, interoperability that's a, got a lot of bees in it, um, it, is a great sort of umbrella for a lot of these use cases. Um, but I think the efforts are, are too large. We want one standard for how this process will work. Um, and we want to, we don't want to launch until we can get everybody to agree on what that is and what that looks like. Um, and so you spend all your time um, planning, in, in a way. In, in planning um, yeah. consensus building, you know, valuable work, uh, but you're not necessarily building or, or doing some of the hard learning around it. Um, I still think the valuable use cases are generally fall under this umbrella around interoperability. But the question is how, um, you know, even under the HIEs, which was a sort of prototypical example of interoperability, even over 10 years ago, there wasn't one interoperability network, even though that might be valuable. People built businesses, people built projects, some of them were government backed, some of them were private, um, you know, private enterprises to to interoperate at a regional level, at a market level, et cetera. And so that's valuable work to do. Um, if companies are involved in technology around clinical communication, data transfer, et cetera, blockchain is an ideal tool to add to their technology stack. Same thing is true um, for, for physician data handling. There are lots of companies who whose business is managing physician data for onboarding processes, for credential processes, et cetera. Again, this is ideal technology for them. Referral management um, on the provider side, again, it's a, it's a multi-party problem uh, fundamentally. How do we get transparency on that? How do we get fast and secure single source of truth for where we are in the process? That's true of payments. And so I don't need, we've already got enough standards and specifications for how we talk in healthcare. What we need better now is not necessarily a new language in how we talk, but a, a view into where we are in the process. Right now, if I think about messaging specifications in healthcare, if it's X12 or if it's Fire even, we're exchanging messages and I'm throwing them over the transom. I'm sliding them under the door to my counterparty, to my partner enterprise. What they're doing with that message is opaque to me. I don't really know. I wish I knew, or at least I wish I knew when they were going to respond. And so what blockchain can do, in addition to these specifications, is take these messages that we transfer back and forth and build in transparent business processes that are transparent to the counterparty. So we will never disagree about where we are, what's been done in the past, and what the next step in the process is going to be. Even that is tremendously valuable, and it doesn't require a reorganization of the entire industry. It can require as little as two parties or three parties involved to generate real business value. Yeah, and what I understand from Demo as well, or Demo, is that um, you know this you could build private networks, so it doesn't have to be public. So this data can remain private within these networks and these multiple parties. So there's no risk of sort of having your data taken from you know the blockchain sure. or something. Well, 
there's two ways to answer that. One of which is, um, and this is really important about DAML, uh, beyond the language, the sort of ecosystem that we're building, DAML is interoperable with a wide variety of blockchains and databases. And, and, and that's by design because all of them have different performance characteristics. So we interoperate now with nine uh, announced uh, protocols and database structures, more are coming. That includes everything from Fabric, uh, Corda, Sawtooth. Um, we've announced an integration to Hyperledger Bezu uh, for the Ethereum ecosystem. Um, there was just an announcement um, about Fisco's uh, BCOS uh, in China. Uh, DAML is interoperable and including databases, uh, things like Postgres, uh, which is a single standalone database. Um, the, the persistence layer is, you know, where you're going to get privacy requirements or privacy, um, functions. Uh, if you put it on something like a sawtooth, uh, every node operator in that network is going to see all the transactions in those network. It doesn't matter if they're written in DAML or if they're a traditional transaction family, uh, from sawtooth. Um, you know, so privacy concerns are a very interesting area, but it mostly depends upon the persistence layer you build DAML atop of. At the application layer, DAML does enforce party-specific views to information and to contracts. So you will never see a contract that's not yours, uh, that you're not a party to, or that you've not been granted a rights to see as an observer or an auditor or some other kind of sp specified role um, there. But at the persistence layer, there are more and more technologies now that enable interoperable networks yet maintain privacy uh, and data segregation. Um, and so it really depends on the use case, uh, what kind of privacy characteristics are required. Um, but you're right in that we, we think a lot about, they used to be called permissioned blockchains, uh, but now they're even moving into more nuanced uh, kinds of organization for how is the data transferred? Who gets to see that? Where is that transaction recorded? On, is it on all the nodes? Is it just a few nodes? Uh, how are transactions validated? Those kinds of things. And so we're seeing a lot of evolution um, in enterprise-grade blockchain stacks, and uh, DAML, uh, we're looking forward to having DAML work on all of them because they all fill very specific needs uh, across the business landscape. Yeah, I think that makes sense. A lot of um, you know these sorts of languages, I guess they're trying to be blockchain agnostic because still not certain which one will be or which ones will be most commonly used. Uh, so that makes sense. Have you? I'm just curious. Have you guys? Are you interoperable with? Um, Hashgraph? Uh, not to my knowledge. Um, although I don't, I don't do that work in DA. Um, we do have a, a dedicated team, what we call DAML on X, um, which is looking at the all the technologies that we bring to to the integrations. Um, so how DAML uh, works with a wide variety. Uh, you know, the, there are these adapters um, um, that that we build, and if the if the um, you know the end protocol is open source, those adapters are open source. So for example, Fabric. You know, we've published the Fabric integ integration, and so anyone can make DAML work um, uh, with Fabric. Uh, DAML's open source, Fabric's open source, the integration is also open source, and so we try to keep that consistency across the board. Um, you know, the, the 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 decision on what which ledgers um, we're integrating into is is a complex one, and part sure. of that is is market demand as well. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, we hear what our what our customers are interested in. Uh, we also you know look deeply at what new um, uh, you know, what are the unique characteristics of, of a protocol and, and can bring um, to a customer deployment. And so if it's something, you know, startlingly new or if it's a new style of innovation um, in this blockchain protocol, you know, those are the kind of things that are taken into effect. You know, something else that we take into account as well is, is where um, enterprises are comfortable buying. 
Um, so, you know, you're starting to see uh, the large um, tech companies and, and cloud providers coming out with protocols. You know, we integrate with something called Amazon QLDB, Quantum Ledger Database. It's a blockchain style, uh, cryptographic style database um, being offered by AWS natively. Um, we integrate with VMware's blockchain. But what comes with that is not only the characteristics of that protocol, but also the, the larger package of what you get when you when you when you build infrastructure on AWS or VMware, uh, you know that that goes into everything from you know high reliability, fallback, um, support is very important, and yeah. so enterprises need to know that it's going to work in the way it's going to work for many years, um, and what kind of co- organization are they comfortable contracting with to to ensure that, and so I think you'll see much larger companies getting involved in offering either uh, supported protocols, open source protocols on their on their cloud offerings or custom their own custom blockchains. Um, and so, you know, we go where the where the enterprises um, uh, need um, to to fulfill their business promise, because, you know, ultimately, DA, we're about supporting enterprise. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. The last few months have ushered in a wave of new telehealth users using generic video conferencing tools. Zoom is one of those companies, seeing a 30-fold surge since the end of December. With all that volume, Zoom has recently gotten a bad reputation for its lack of security and privacy infrastructure due to unwanted participants jumping into conference meetings. On May 7th, Zoom announced its acquisition of Keybase to strengthen its security of the video communications platform. Keybase, which launched in 2014, has developed an encrypted social networking service that allows users to tie their identities to a user's PGP key or other encryption keys. They use a security protocol that can be considered more secure than two-factor authentication. The acquisition of the 25-person startup is the latest move in a 90-day plan that Zoom announced on April 1st to fix its security flaws. In these arrangements, services use a system called public-private key authentication, in which each user has two long alphanumeric strings assigned to their account, one secret and one openly shared. This is basically how blockchain-based encryption works. In fact, Keybase has a public key for publishing Merkle roots to the Bitcoin blockchain, They also have announced using Stellar since January of 2020. In the future, Zoom says it will offer end-to-end encryption to all its paying customers, but it will affect functionality. The CEO of Zoom outlined that end-to-end encryption meetings will not support phone bridges, cloud recording, or non-Zoom conference room systems. Critics of the deal have expressed concern about Zoom's closed-source apps, which may prevent it from truly mitigating privacy concerns. According to Decrypt, Gab CEO Andrew Torba has said Keybase sold out for all the wrong reasons. And I quote, It's disappointing to see Keybase sell out to a company with 700 employees in China that has openly admitted to routing data through Chinese servers. He continues to say, We are proud to offer GabChat, an end-to-end encrypted alternative to Keybase, and we'll soon be launching ON, or ON, which is their own video conferencing alternative to Zoom, unquote. And while I think it's great that Zoom is attempting to leverage a more decentralized model for security, it still has a lot of work ahead of it to incorporate actual telehealth-specific workflows that accommodate providers, patients, and clinical staff workflows. 
Zoom's own blog site indicates that it is HIPAA compliant, but many critics argue it does not meet the necessary compliance requirements for telehealth. Obviously, ever since the relaxing of HIPAA enforcement, this argument also has less weight among actual users. One thing we can be certain of is that there will continue to be better and more secure options for patients and providers to connect virtually online as demand for telehealth increases. You can find reference links to this news corner in the show notes. And now back to the second half of episode 63 with Corey Todaro from Digital Asset. Yeah, and I was looking at the marketplace at, on the demo website, and there are already like dozens of different applications already. It looks like it was they've been built out by different companies already. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you can kind of talk about a couple of them that are, you know, being used right now, or you think you know you should highlight. Sure, sure. So yeah, the Daml marketplace on on Daml.com. It's an interesting area where we we identify uh, Daml applications. Uh, a lot of those have been built by uh, partner organizations, uh, companies who are utilizing Daml in, inside their product. And so you can read about that information there. There's a whole host of applications, though, that were built by DA. We call them reference applications. Mm. Um, they're reference code. They're open source under Apache 2 license. And so you can click right through to the GitHub repo. Um, some A lot of interesting projects in there. Uh, there's a healthcare one on, on straight through claims processing that actually goes everything from scheduling through prior authorization eligibility check um, through the submission and payment of the claim, um, all modeled in DAML. And it's, it's an interesting way of, of viewing how DAML models relate to, you know, what should be or is a well-known business process in healthcare. A couple of other really interesting projects in there um, is there, there's a lot of work around um, a message integration. Um, and uh, that work began in financial services industries in the context of, of derivatives uh, and futures. And so the, um, the International Association for Standards, I'm sorry, the International uh, Swaps and Derivatives Association developed a standard workflow for how derivatives should operate. They call the common domain model. And we've modeled that in DAML. And we've also built specific language integrations um, around that use case that work with something called FPML, Financial Product Modeling Language, mm-hmm. um, as well as a host of other uh, financial messaging specifications, SWIFT, for example, which are used by the, the majority of, of, of financial institutions around the world. Um, so it's a really interesting area to go and see the kinds of things that are being built. And, and just to let you know, there'll be more healthcare uh, reference apps coming. And uh, I think we're going to be um, working on some um, an example, a reference for uh, how to integrate fire and fire messaging uh, into Daml smart contracts. And so we can directly query EMRs. Uh, the return from those uh, EHRs can, uh, can feed Daml contracts, essentially. Um, they can provide the necessary data to ex- exercise choices. And importantly, on the other side, we can generate a host of messages after the contract has has iterated or committed. So, for example, in a prior authorization use case, we could provide the necessary clinical information via FHIR um, to to satisfy the prior authorization requirements in a smart contract. Once that's authorized, DAML can then generate an X12 uh, prior authorization message, uh, which is required by state law uh, in most states in the United States to complete the workflow. And so you see you get multiple in, uh, messaging integrations um, and messaging specifications on the back end as well. Interesting. So, you know, when I think about like prior author, you know, claims processing, um, some centralized large institutions come to mind, for example, Change Healthcare, um, mm-hmm. you know, definitely for claims processing. So would this be in conjunction with companies like Change Healthcare or can it operate, you know, I feel like we would need to send those messages through Change Healthcare, right? That's the idea. 
you know, maybe, maybe not. Uh, Change has done work with Damo. Um, they they uh, demoed something at um, the the last physical hymns we had, which was hymns 2019, um, on payment on payment automation using Damo. Um, that's interesting, and they continue uh, to explore it. Um, the way it's organized, um, it doesn't necessarily have to. I mean, a lot of prior authorization workflows begin and end with the payer asking the provider to fax them a form um, with some relevant clinical information. And so it could be a, a two-party interaction. Uh, it can be uh, a three-party interaction in the sense of a, what we call a central counterparty. That's a technical term in financial services. It's more of a metaphor uh, in, in, in a lot of healthcare workflows. Um, but for us, it, it really depends upon the appetite of the, um, uh, of, of the end users. Uh, you know, what, what does the workflow look like today? How can we improve it and bring business value to those parties? Whether that's a, you know, a direct peer-to-peer -peer interaction between a provider and a payer, or whether that involves a, a range of, of third parties. You know, I think if you look at more complex workflows like value-based care, you know, it's not going to be two counterparties. It could be four or five um, who are all sharing risk um, around a specific agreement. But you do highlight the role, uh, the important role that a lot of what we call market operators provide. Um, and so, I, you know, I want to be clear. I don't think necessarily that blockchain needs to disintermediate. Um, I think blockchain enables disintermediation where there isn't value creation. Uh, and that's the standard I apply. You know, third parties, centralized counterparties, <laughs> you know, they, they aren't necessarily bad. Um, they provide value to a wide range of their customers. And so I think you really need to, uh, you know, we need to be nuanced in our understanding of whether or not those, those parties provide value. And I think there's a tremendous amount of value provided by um, organizations like clearinghouses. It's not just paper pushing. Uh, there's actually a lot of work going on behind there um, around this ecosystem here. In the same way that you look at financial exchanges, um, you know, whether that's our flagship uh, project at DA, which is the Australian Securities Exchange, um, or some some work we have with a number of other exchanges. You know, they already sit at the middle of very broad um, and very um, uh, uh, very rich networks. Uh, of, of interacting counterparties. And so you don't need to reinvent the wheel there. You know, they need to, um, and they're, they're interested in innovating to bring greater value uh, to the customers they serve today. And yeah, that's so really looking at that pattern is, is one that I think is, is really valuable. Yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. Uh, and I appreciate your perspective because I think a lot of people into blockchain or cryptocurrency or tokenized futures are um, really into disintermediating all these central entities like big banks or you know clearing houses or insurance companies mm -hmm. like payers um and i think you're right in a way that it is very nuanced and you know they exist for a reason you don't have these multi-billion dollar companies existing for absolutely no reason that doesn't mean in five or ten years they could go out of business and there might be some sort of smarter way of doing or performing or creating that value you know without them mm -hmm. specifically and you know that's a goal you know we have AI solutions that could come up that, you know, we, we can't imagine right now, um, which would be awesome. But um, I sure. do appreciate that you're not going in saying, hey, you know, we got to just disintermediate everyone <laughs> because central authority is the problem. So I think. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not an absolutist in any, any, you know, decentralization is not an absolute good. Mm -hmm. uh, neither is centralization, uh, neither is disintermediation. You know, it's, it's, it's contextual and it's contextual to industries. And it's contextual ultimately to the appetites of the players in these industries. And so, you know, I want to and I need to meet, um, you know, where these enterprise are, where enterprises are, what they're comfortable with, what they're willing to do, 
Um, and so from my perspective, I want to see this technology adopted yeah, because I'm a, I'm a big believer in the promise um, of the value that it can create, the form of that value creation. Um, you know, I'm agnostic to uh, at the end of the day. And so I'm not trying to push any sort of philosophical agenda. And, and I appreciate uh, those who believe that, you know, we can disintermediate the world. Yeah. Um, you know, it's an interesting perspective, and I'm glad they're doing it because like a, most open source projects, in the world, um, there's all kinds of applications. And if I look at something like Linux, for example, which I'm a user of, it's it's got started in the wild. Um, it has since transformed into the backbone of most enterprise web applications. That is great, but there's still this wild open source public work going on. And I think that's a nice feedback cycle of, you know, we get to sit there, or I get to sit and, and watch what's happening um, in, in projects all across the world, like the one you mentioned, LLAO, uh, which sounds fascinating. I want to learn more about it. I want to see how it can, it can bring value to the customers I'm engaged with and the clients I'm engaged with. And so I think it's a really valuable interactive loop. I just don't think we can be dogmatic. Uh, necessarily about this, um, you know, we, we we see value where we see it, um, and we see, um, you know, uh, I just think we have to be uh, nuanced. All. Yeah, I agree. Let's not trade one religion for another, right? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, we're talking about healthcare stakeholders and different parties in healthcare. You have patients, providers, payers, pharma, researchers, um, and you know, plenty more. So, I would like to ask you, how can these various stakeholders benefit from a decentralized ecosystem? Well, you know, the notion of, and it's, it's, I think it's already been articulated by uh, the Health Utility Network, which is uh, another healthcare consortium, is the notion of sort of utilities. Um, I, I think of a lot of the value that a decentralized option can come up with is that there is one thing I can plug into um, to meet certain business function needs uh, that I don't have to take the onus of operating myself, nor do I have to place absolute trust in another party to do so. It's sort of the stakes of trust are set at the utility level, and I, I can plug into that in the same way that I can do so for the electricity. Now, I may disagree with the local rates that are being charged, hmm. um, but I know that I can connect um, you know, for water, for electricity, et cetera. And so are there business utilities, business workflow utilities that, um, that can be built and operated? Decentralized, again, is tricky. You know, I don't know if... Does that mean it's public and anybody can join or does that is it being built by the industry for the industry, in which case it starts to look like standards implementations? You know, I, I think there's a spectrum in here that's very interesting, but I think that's where um, the value around these kind of decentralized networks come from in the sense of it's there, it's trustworthy, and I can plug into it um, if I can accept the protocol and I can, you know, be comfortable with whatever the privacy standards or transactional throughput standards are being offered by that network. And so when I think about patients, I think that's where you're going to see the most value. I understand the concerns of health providers who can tell you to the penny what network leakage is costing them in terms of lost revenue if I go to a different provider, a different radiologi a radiologist or specialist instead of the one that's operated by the hospital. Um, but I think patient choice um, is not only highly touted in the U.S., I think it's valuable to enable people to, to see the physicians that they want if they have more information about those physicians from a cost and quality perspective. You know, I think providers, um, payers, etc., the value for them comes in, in in helping streamline very expensive business processes. And a prime example of this is something like uh, shared accumulators for payers. So payers mean? have to, 
payers and pharma pharmacy benefit management PBMs need to keep track of every beneficiary's um, deductible spend and out-of-pocket spend per plan year. So then they, you need to know when I go pick up a prescription at my local pharmacy, I, I'm quoted the price. That price is dependent upon how much I've spent against my deductible right. to the minute from medical services, from pharmacy services, from behavioral services, um, DME. And so it's a really complex calculation uh, of what my my current status is from an out-of-pocket perspective. And that can include my families, uh, you know, my, my spouse, my, my de- uh, dependents, my children. Um, and so currently health plans will spend a lot of money uh, on the order of about a million dollars per connection with a um, with a what they call a, a partner uh, for a shared accumulator so it might be a PBM it might be a very large health system with which they have a lot of business especially on the state level a million dollars just to build the connection for us to communicate this information back and forth. And then what we do is we um, we shoot messages back and forth about how much spent has been happening so we can keep a running total. The PBM usually handles pharmacy claims, so they, they get the view, the, the first uh, seat view on the pharmacy spend, and the health plan gets the medical claims and processes them. And so they need to combine these views together. Um, but they spend all that money to build a very brittle connection and they spend most of the time over that connection doing reconciliation traffic, saying, hey, our, our, our sums seem to be off. Can we roll back 50 transactions, 100 transactions and figure out where where we're missing something? The notion of a utility that you can just plug into and create bespoke networks of plan partners together to amalgamate this information would be a tremendous value saving for someone like a payer. And so the notion of of business-specific utilities, I think, is where you see value in the notion of decentralized networks in healthcare. Pharma is very similar, um, especially around clinical research. I think there's a lot of very interesting work being done in federated learning models, which are decentralized models in which we can share the um, uh, the algorithms to the data um, by, while keeping the data private and, and sort of sharing the learnings from all of our data sets without revealing our data sets themselves. And those are, are naturally um, work with decentralized organizations, essentially. So independent um, universities um, who are doing research, pharma companies, et cetera. You know, that, having access to those kinds of utilities would be, would be tremendously valuable. Are there any companies or organizations doing this now in terms of a utility that can be just connected to? You know, that's, that's always the, hundred, the, 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 the real big question in healthcare is what's, what's production? You know, what's yeah. in production? Production is, again, a, a tricky, slippery term that represents a spectrum of things. I think there are a lot of organizations uh, or projects that are, are somewhat mature or maturing and have, have an, uh, a notion of hoping to be a utility. Um, so, you know, I think, I think MetaLedger is a very interesting project, um, you know, backed by Chronicle. Um, I think they have a notion of being a, a sort of uh, pharma supply chain utility, uh, perhaps broader than just supply chain. The Federated Learning Project um, out of uh, the EU, which is, has backing from the EU, uh, Melody, um, is, is really interesting work. Um, you know, we were at a conference earlier this year where we saw um, some Federated Learning work being done by a, a consortium of academic medical centers in the United States. Um, whether or not that's production scale or not is is interesting. Whether or not they, they actually operate as a utility is interesting as well. I think we have to do a lot more learning about how to run those and who runs those kinds of utilities. Because ultimately, even if it's decentralized, there are certain key stakeholders who um, will provide outsized level of service to make sure that it operates. Uh, you know, in, in the cryptocurrency world, it's the pool of miners, which is now becoming represented by very large mining pools. 
um, who are who exercise more control over the network than we might be comfortable admitting. I'm certainly happy that they're doing it because I don't have the wherewithal to provide that level of network support. And so inevitably, there will be some enterprises who play an outsized role in, in supporting the operation of that utility. Um, and, and understanding who those people are and what's their business interest is not a business model that we have net necessarily. Um, yeah, I think we can have some learnings from organizations like HIEs and how they build business models. Um, but I think there's there's still some more evolution to, to go there. But I, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, I, I feel good about the level of progress that we're seeing uh, today in a wide variety of projects that are taking place in healthcare. Can you share some of your industry partners, you know, digital assets, business partners, um some customer traction? Sure, sure. Uh, well, you know, we have a really interesting notion of partners, um, and, and we work very closely with partners. Uh, you know, we work with a lot of the, um, the large um, system integrations and consulting organizations um, who have a lot of pre-existing business relationships with, with healthcare enterprises um, and who are taking a lead in being, um, you know, stables of developers uh, who are familiar with this technology, for example. Uh, so, you know, that's everyone from, um, you know, organizations like Accenture, GFT, Brilio, um, are all organizations that we work with. We also have what we call ledger partners, um, who are organizations or enterprises who are offering, um, you know, commercial supportable ledger implementations. Um, so that, that can be like VMware. We made an announcement with VMware that Dammo will work on the VMware blockchain. VMware is selling that, uh, you know, they're, they're offering the blockchain support models that they offer. Daml works on top of that. Uh, but, the, you know, that also includes startups. Um, there's a great company called BTP we work with um, who is offering a, a number of Daml integrated ledgers. Um, so Sawtooth, QLDB, Amazon Aurora. Uh, and they've also recently announced uh, that they're working on the Hyperledger Bezu integration as well. And so, you know, we have a wide variety of partners like that who provide um, either, you know, commercially accessible and supported ledger implementations or who can provide, uh, you know, development work um, to, to help really build out a, a full product suite. In terms of our clients, though, you know, in healthcare, I can't mention specifics by name, uh, but, you know, we're, we're involved in a, in a wide range of projects. Clinical interoperability and messaging is one. Uh, we're doing work um, more recently in uh, decentralized and distributed identity management uh, in healthcare contexts, which is especially interesting, not only in general, but in light of some of the issues that are coming up um, with COVID-19 around how we can, you know, certify uh, whether or not someone is contagious or not, uh, those kinds of issues. Um, we are doing work in supply chain, specifically around third-party risk management um, and some consumer engagement um, ar around drug delivery, um, the experience of taking a drug. So that's, you know, what we call you know patient engagement um, uh, on the pharma side, which is, you know, a little separate from the kind of regulatory overlay of what supply chain looks like, uh, but it certainly is related there. We're working with a company that's building out something around pharmacy benefit management, um, specifically for self-insured employers. That's really interesting. Um, and so there's there's really, um, you know, there's a wide variety of projects um, that are underway with DAML. And so I want to encourage you, if anybody out there is actually using DAML um, on yeah. some work, um, and, and I, if you're not talking to me, I'd love to hear about it because uh, we love to trumpet the work uh, where we can, trumpet by name, um, uh, people who are utilizing DAML uh, to build out solutions there. Uh, but, you know, I think in one of the reasons I, I work at DA is, is, is to help um, – you know, DA has an association with financial services and capital markets. Uh, that's really where it's, it's where its origins are. 
Um, but, you know, we've been working over the past year or so to really expand the industry portfolio and to help enterprises realize that DAML is not a specifically financial services uh, designed language or in technology. It really has broad applicability no matter what your industry is. And so we're seeing a lot more industries broader than capital markets come to the table, not only healthcare, uh, which is where I work, but um, logistics is a very interesting area, whether that's uh, perishables and food um, or, or, or hard items, um, electronics and consumer facing products is interesting uh, large appliance manufacturers uh, companies like that yeah and you know, thanks for that open invitation i'll include some of the ways to contact you in the show notes too sure. for the audience da is backed by some large banks like citibank goldman sachs jp morgan santander mm-hmm. and also like ibm and uh, accenture like you mentioned so is there any consideration for how the crypto community who believes blockchain and cryptocurrency will end the big banks how how does that um <laughs> Any considerations there? Uh, that's a that's a that's a loaded question in some ways. Uh, no, let me just say this: um, digital asset is that is 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 a company that that uh, we're interested in serving large enterprises. Um, I, I don't discount any of the, of the crypto work going on. That's just not where you know it's not where I play. Um, thankfully, so I mean I'd be out of my depth there. Uh, there's a lot of interesting work going on there. I will say though that our technology, you know, is being used in some some interesting crypto concepts. Um, and I think this year you'll you'll see some some interesting notions around uh, tokenization with DAML, um, as well as some new network configurations that uh, are fully decentralized. Not all of work are, is necessarily permissioned closed blockchains. You know, DAML is agnostic as to the underlying persistence layer, and I really want that's a really important thing to know. And so, um, you know, the company itself, in terms of its funders. Um, include not only financial institutions, but large technology companies. You know, we recently announced a round where Salesforce and Samsung participated. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so it's more than just financial services. Um, in terms of backing, um, I think we're seeing a lot of, a, a lot of support and, um, and, and faith from um, uh, enterprise technology companies as well. That's not to say that the technology is not interoperable um, or operable in, in decentralized contexts. Um, it's just so, you know, from my perspective, it uh, doesn't sound like it, but I don't work in that area uh, fundamentally. I have some opinions about whether cryptocurrency works in healthcare. I have my doubts, mostly because it's such a highly regulated environment. Um, if anybody is familiar with their state and federal regu- insurance regulations, it is tremendously Byzantine. And so the notion that we can simply create new payment models in healthcare sounds promising um but underneath that that sort of blanket statement is a whole lot of complexity um which which gives me some pause um there yeah i agree um you know the legal part of it is very complex and even if you figured it out enforcing it is another issue itself so is it does it count is it against the law um (laughs) can you kind of describe some of the competitive or cooperative landscape do you find them to be competitors or you know, not necessarily. And I talked about ledger partners before. Um, and so, you know, we really view um, the persistence layer. We're agnostic yeah. to the persistence layer, whether that's a SQL database or whether that's an open uh, decentralized blockchain. When I say it doesn't matter to us, it doesn't matter with the way you write a DAML application. Uh, it's not a value statement that it doesn't matter to me. Um, you know, your DAML application will work in the exact same way, um, no matter what it's uh, deployed upon. Some of the characteristics of those of those blockchains do influence, as we discussed, privacy, uh, visibility of transactions and those kinds of things. But every blockchain we integrate into has its own native way of writing smart contracts. So Solidity on the Ethereum network, Fabric has its notion of chain code and you can actually bring a number of languages to it. Um, But most commonly um, Java, 
um, you know, Kotlin for, for cord apps on, on the Corda network. Uh, Sawtooth, you can bring a number of languages to as well. So in one sense, you can think of the, those languages and, and the way you write to those blockchains as, as competitive. Um, I don't really see it that way. Um, you know, you, you can certainly write smart contracts in any language you like. We just happen to believe um, and, and believe strongly and, and invite you to see for yourself with the open source uh, documentation and the SDK how much better it is to write smart contracts utilizing DAML. And so, uh, you know, our effort isn't to undercut anyone's work um, on other blockchains. Um, in fact, you know, I, I would love to see more DAML apps uh, running on fabric networks. Um, you know, but that really is an interesting question because some people are trying to build what I'll call um, self-contained ecosystems on blockchains uh, in a way, you know, so mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's an open source blockchain, but it's being offered under sort of a commercial license, and it's got you know they purport to have everything you need um, from a, a smart contracting language, from a, an infrastructure, uh, etc. And I think that you know those are big packages, um, and so in some ways you could see maybe Daml um, as uh, as being competitive with those offerings in, in the sense of offering you a, an alternative way of interacting with that technology, uh, open source or not. Um, and, and so that that's an interesting uh, competitive landscape. You know, frankly, when I talk to um, healthcare enterprises, uh, there is a notion that these blockchains are competitive with each other. Oh, we're a fabric shop. Oh, we work with fabric or, mm -hmm. you know, we really like Ethereum. Um, and that's mostly, a, I think, a result of what they've done early work with, you know, what they're most familiar with or what they feel comfortable with. You know, um, IBM's work in, in fabric is, is incredible uh, and extensive. And, you know, that provides a lot of comfort and value. Uh, for some enterprise customers, the notion of they feel comfortable picking fabric. Um, you know, we want to say, I don't even want to discuss the protocol in a way. And 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 I often like to lead conversations where we say, we're not going to talk about protocol. That's a secondary decision. Mm -hmm. The first decision you need to make is business value for, of the solution. What is the solution going to look like? And what, what business problem is it attacking? And does it provide value? If it can be proven to provide value, then we've got the organizational backing to do a full, what we call a non-functional requirement assessment. Non-functional requirements can be all over the map, but it's the non-functional requirement that will lead you to pick a protocol. You know, I need 100 millisecond transaction response time. I need full data segregation uh, and encrypted privacy of the data. Uh, you know, I need uh, the ability to geofence nodes, you know, a whole range of factors that come into play when you really think about deploying this from a production perspective. Um, and so I want to encourage everyone to not think of these as competitive. They're all wonderful tools and the teams working on them are all doing amazing work. I just want people to understand that the solution doesn't have to begin and end with the selection of a protocol. It has to begin with business value and pick the best tools um, that, that allow you to bring that value to market faster, to stay there longer, um, and, and to easily manage it throughout its life cycle as a solution. So day two is just as important as day one. Uh, <laughs> and so, the, you know, that's the way I, I kind of look at, uh, at the competitive landscape, um, you know, if you, yeah. if you have to characterize it that way. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, I get that. And I think geofencing is actually a, an important issue because some regulators don't allow you to have, for example, patient information in a different country, for example. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a good point. And I'm wondering, how does DA make money from... Daml, or what's the business model around it? It is open source. Is it fully accessible, or are there certain premium features that are limited? No, it's it's fully open source. Um, 
you can use DAML to your heart's content and never ever talk to DA. Um, and that's that's perfectly acceptable. Um, you know, we, we, we generate revenue in, in, in a number of ways, uh, one of which is we, we help enterprises get up and running uh, with with smart contracts. And, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of need. Uh, blockchain is still comparatively new as a technology. It's certainly new from a conceptual perspective on the best ways to develop multi-party programs. Multi-party applications are different from some other kinds of applications. And so there's a there's a not necessarily full competence inside these enterprises to to design them well. And so we can get involved in some of that work. Uh, we never like to get in the way of, of the IP of what gets built. What, what, what you build with DAML is yours. Uh, we never want to get in that way. Um, you know, from a longer term perspective around revenue, we are, we are uh, you know, we have commercial agreements with ledger partners um, who are offering supported commercial um, applications or commercial infrastructure uh, from a ledger in which DAML operates. Um, and if DAML operates within that, uh, you know, then we see revenue from that ultimately. Uh, but not, you know, directly from the end user, but only as a, you know, we liken it to an OEM play uh, in some ways. We're an OEM component inside a, lar a larger offering uh, in the same way that, you know, there's an Intel chip inside your computer. Intel sees revenue from when you bought the computer, but you never had to pay Intel necessarily. And so we make full offerings better. Uh, because we provide an easy way, a secure way of writing applications with that infrastructure and of supporting uh, an easier way of supporting uh, that application through its lifecycle there. And so, um, you know, our work with Ledger Partners is very important uh, and it's part of our revenue model. Got it. So these uh, questions here are a little bit more personal. What, sure. what, do, you what do you believe in that most people <laughs> would disagree with? Uh <laughs> Well, if we're talking about the blockchain world, it's decentralization is an absolute good. I do not believe that. Um, okay. And uh, I, I, get in, I get in arguments about that all the time. If it's a broader issue, you know, it's – this is not going to interest anybody but me. Uh, but given my academic know. background, yeah. religion is an artificial construct. I, I know that. From, having spent uh, – the, read the, these books behind me, having spent decades of my life studying religion, religion is an artificial construct. It's a modern academic construct, actually. Corey, we got to spend uh, another hour or two talking about that. I think that would be yeah. an interesting conversation. That's not to say that religion's not important or religion's not real. It's just this the notion that it's the separate thing, uh -huh. um, uh, you know, separate from other aspects of your life is is a complete fallacy. That's not the way religion is lived. And I'll give you a really interesting modern contemporary example. Mm -hmm. A couple of weeks ago in Indonesia, uh, they were enforcing. Uh, they were just beginning to enforce social distancing, okay. and in a small town in Indonesia, people were going out at night. And so a group of people decided they were going to dress up like um, like vampires, essentially, uh, the ghosts uh, um, from Indonesian and Malayan folklore. And they were going to sit on benches in the town in order to scare people not to go out at night. Okay. It sounds kooky, but from my historian of religion perspective, I looked at that as like, that's religion. That is lived religion right there. That's people... With a with a common currency of of language and and belief structure, and the way they acted out, um, that's what religion's about. It's not about these institutions that we think of. It's not centralized in these institutions. It's a lived experience uh, that's complex, um, with a lot of the parts of our shared history with each other as people. Um, and so that's what I mean by that. <laughs> no, it's, Again. It's, I think that's actually really interesting, and I think my audience will think so too. And to me, <laughs> if you think about religion in terms of you know, 12th century or, you know, a long time ago, states and religion were one in one. They were together. At some mm -hmm. point, we had the separation of church and state. What we don't have is the separation of state and money. I think a lot of people in the crypto <laughs> oh, blockchain space 
are <laughs> envisioning a world where state and money state do become separated. separate. And yeah. so these value transfers will be, um, you know, not always through the state, but instead it could be a personal thing. Mm-hmm. And it kind of is, right? If, if I'm trading yeah. you an ox for a cow, you know, that's a personal thing. Why does the government have to get involved, right? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Touche as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what is your favorite book? Oh, you know, you, you shared this question with me. So I've, I've actually got four because I'm a geek. Go for it. Uh, and, and a book lover. Okay. Here, here are my four favorite books. Um, Map is Not Territory by my mentor in religion, uh, Jonathan Z. Smith. An amazingly good book. It's a collection of essays on religion. You may find them horribly boring, but uh, it opened my eyes into a new way of understanding this human phenomenon. Uh, from a tech perspective, it is Where Wizards Stay Up Late uh, by Katie Hafner. Uh, it's a, a narrative history of the creation of the ARPANET, mm. um, which was the precursor to the internet. Um, amazing story and really shows you how you can't manage innovation in the way you expect. You can't plan it. Um, it's it's great about these personal relationships that come up that influenced characteristics of the TCP IP stack that we have today and that we operate on. And so if you ever really want to see uh, a great story of how a world-changing technology began uh, and how it evolved over a couple of decades to become what we recognize as the Internet today, I highly recommend it. I think it's fantastic. Um, my geeky book for my work is, uh, it's actually a textbook uh, called Contract Theory uh, by a, a Belgian economist, uh, <laughs> uh, Matthias uh, Dutrapal. Um, it's it's e- economic theory, uh, but it's about, you know, contract optimization. Uh, what are what are good functioning contracts and what are bad, mad, you know, malfunctioning contracts from a mathematical perspective? Uh, really fascinating work, and I, I'm constantly thinking about that from from my own work perspective on on how we build the models that are, that are optimal uh, in some ways. And then I, I'm a kind of a, I'm not a math practitioner, but I'm a math geek. So I'm reading a book called Moonshine Beyond the Monster. If you've never heard of moonshine theory or the monster group in mathematics, it's a, it's an area of number theory, which is kind of weird. Um, but it, it's an example of how they found a correspondence between two widely separate sections uh, or, or fields of mathematics. There's a distinct and deep correspondence between these two areas of mathematics that people never suspected before. Uh, and how they stumbled upon it, and and what it means, and what I the reason I like it is uh, as my career might <laughs> show you, I'm a big believer in what I call extensible knowledge, um, taking knowledge from other fields um, um, and applying right. them to your own is is incredibly valuable. And the way uh, I love reading about stories where people do that and and people stumble onto these kinds of things, which become very important. Um, that no one would have looked for because you know we're kind of all focused on our own thing, and so I think cross uh, industry cross domain knowledge is is incredibly valuable uh and it's the kind of environment i like to work in yeah and i agree i think um you know a lot of people now or not a lot but sometimes what happens if you're doing like a phd for example um and you're not encouraged to be you know at the forefront or critically think too much you're kind of just in your own track you're focusing on one specific problem that you don't realize what's going on in a different part of the world that's maybe related um, so it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Have you it's ever one of the, the great things about conference? Go ahead. Have you read the book uh, "The Problem of Political Authority" by Michael Humer? It talks I have about not. social contract theory. I think it's something you would like. Um, it's really interesting. You hear my clacky keyboard while I write that down. No worries. <laughs> 
I'm one of those cranky people with a really loud keyboard. <laughs> I like it loud. <laughs> yeah, my brother's got the same thing. It's it's annoying, but <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> um, I have another question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Have you changed your mind about anything recently, and what made you change? Oh, it? yeah, I've changed my mind about decentralized identity. Hmm. And, and and people who've worked with me in the past know. There was a time in what, 2018 or 2019 when people mentioned DID, and I would just I would be I would be frustrated. I'm like, oh, can we please stop talking about this? I, I cannot imagine a way in which a large enterprise is going to utilize DID. I, I can see its value. I can see it from a philosophical perspective. I can understand it from a utility network perspective. I just can't imagine that you're going to get a QR code scanned by a you know a bouncer at a bar, or that a hospital in, you know admission department is going to be pinging the Bitcoin blockchain to obtain verifiable credentials. I just couldn't see it. And it was frustrating how much air, how much airtime DID gets. <laughs> so I would be working, like you said, on my own little problem and I'd hear this thing and I would just be frustrated, like get it out of my way. But my mind was changed uh, earlier this year. We've, we've begun working with a partner, I, I can't necessarily talk about uh, at the moment, hmm. um, who explained to me in very crystal clear terms exactly how uh, and an infrastructure should be built to enable enterprises uh, to utilize um, uh, self-verifying credentials. Um, and so some of that work is already underway, uh, and I'm very excited about it. And uh, if anybody who knows me or worked with me in the past <laughs> will know, I would, I, I mean, I would get really frustrated and just like scream, no, I don't want to hear about it. <laughs> so I have come around, um, and I'm thankful uh, to the way it was expressed to me. Um, and, and the work uh, that was done prior to that. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad I have something to hang my, my hat on now. I, I can understand it. I can put my arms around it. I can really think about now how to make use of it. Where before, and you know, this is common too in, in blockchain. There's lots of, you know, surface level articles that get written. Um, you know, they're all over the place describing a project. I mean, zero knowledge proofs is the same thing. Oh, zero knowledge proofs. No one can explain it to you. They don't really understand how hard it is, that kind of thing. And so I was tired of the hype, and I, I didn't have the time. Uh, I didn't make the time to to really kind of understand how these ecosystems can be built. Um, and now um, we're doing some very interesting work uh, in healthcare uh, and in other industries, um, utilizing some of these newer frameworks that are coming out. Uh, again, open source, open specifications, backed. Um, but um, seeing and hearing the interest specifically from some enterprises and how they want to make use of it, it really opened my eyes. And so often I go into conversations with healthcare enterprises where they're looking at me, you know, tell me about blockchain, and I'm like, no, I'm tired of talking about I want to hear from you. What are your ideas on blockchain? What are your business problems that you want to do? And so, you know, I can never, um, I can never stop getting that lesson of be quiet and listen. <laughs> and I'm glad I have a recent example to reinforce that, uh, that lesson on me. That is really interesting. And Corey, I am actually super excited for that too. Uh, so once that does come out, please do let me know. I actually had a person <laughs> uh, on the show, Karsten, Karsten Steiker for, from uh, Germany. He's CEO <laughs> of Sphurity. So he's doing a lot of work with um, self-sovereign identity and decentralized identity stuff. So uh, check out that episode. I think it was a few episodes ago. Excellent. 60, Thanks. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my next question, this is an interesting one, I think, is if you had to have a microchip implanted <laughs> in your body, where would you want it to be implanted? Yeah, I, I could cheat and say, well, what the what would the microchip do uh, is, is yeah. kind of a question. But I'm going to say my, my ear or my eye. 
Um, the notion I, of being able to see more information in my eye. That would be cool. You know, I, I love that sort of sci-fi trope of the heads-up display. That's part of my natural vision. You know, Google Glass was going to do that for us. Um, it's taken a backseat for a while. I think it's going to come back again as, you know, we've got augmented reality now. But uh, that kind of natural augmented reality, I think, would be really interesting. It could be distracting. Same thing with the ear, uh, you know, to be able to to, to hear information. Um, or to expand, you know, my ability to hear things, interact with the environment um, uh, would be would be valuable. I don't know if that's a popular answer or not. <laughs> I haven't really I've, thought I've about heard it. Heard all sorts of answers. Um, yeah, and and I think um, that's a pretty interesting one. I, I would like to have some sort of magnified vision or extra hearing. That'd be pretty cool. I think so. Sure, I get that. <laughs> and I think like the whole AR and VR thing are going to become much bigger as we are becoming more physically distant from each other and we're all staying at home so i think yeah. that's another thing to think about yeah I and mean, i think it's really promising the way we you know I, I i've been participating in the internet since the early 90s um i remember pre-web browsers uh you know telnet and all that um i, I i'm starting to feel like the way the, the the internet paradigm especially around information um and i'm you know i'm a knowledge worker mm -hmm. i i work live and work on a computer I've noticed a change in, in search responses. Um, it used to be, you know, it's becoming very commercialized now. Mm. Um, it's becoming very, um, what I'll call listicle. You know, you'll, you'll put something into Google now and you will get like that little, there's a little return now where it, they have like seven questions like yours and you could just pull a, a turn down to get, you know, the, the six answers to your question. Um, it's getting a little too... Um, commoditized, if you will, like you know, uniform. Everyone's starting trite. to think the same way. Or... Absolutely, absolutely. Hmm. And and the problem with that is, and and if I think about the internet as a library, and I love libraries, mm -hmm. um, academic libraries were my home. We have really messed up the library to make the the card catalog better, which is <laughs> what search engines are. I mean, we have really recreated the entire library to serve the card catalog, if you think about it from Google's perspective, uh, and Google as the card catalog. And so the hope um, that we have um, some new paradigms with the way of interacting, uh, querying, and interacting with information um, is, is exciting. I think it's uh, overdue, and I hope AR can be used for, you know, not only entertainment purposes, which is what it's being done for today, but in a wide variety of applications. That's very interesting. Um, how are you coping with physical distancing now that I'm assuming you're home most of the time? <laughs> yeah. Now, I work from home anyway. Uh, DA's um, U.S. office is in New York. Um, so I live and work in Nashville, uh, where I've been for 20 years now. Um, so I'm pretty comfortable with it, um, being in my home office. Um, of course, my family's here with me now, too, including my you know wonderful daughters um, who are teenagers now. Uh, so those are some new challenges. But um I was talking with a colleague of mine in Hong Kong today. I miss traveling. <laughs> I really do. Um, you know, business travel is always seen as kind of it's it's great, but it's it's really tiring. It's exhausting. It starts to drag. Airports are kind of soul sucking places. Yeah. Um, but I really wish I could travel. Uh, one of my favorite trips last year was to Singapore. Um, did some really great, work, interesting work with Accenture there and J.P. Morgan on Project Ubin. And it was my first trip to Singapore, and I loved, fell in love with Singapore. I haven't I'm been. Thinking, I've heard only good things. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's an amazing place. Uh, in that whole part of the world, uh, Malaysia and Indonesia, and uh, the mix of cultures is incredible. Um, and I'm just thinking to myself, when am I going to be allowed to go to Asia again? That's a good question. And 
and physically. I'm worried that it's <laughs> physically, and I'm worried it's going to be a long time. Um, yeah. And I hope not. I really hope not, because um, some of my most exciting work over the past couple of years has been uh, traveling internationally, whether that's in, in Europe or, or Africa or, or especially to Asia. Yeah, no, I, unfortunately, I think I agree with you. It's going to be many months, I think, potentially years before like everyone is just back to normal, if that even ever mm-hmm. happens. Um, but I think, you know, we'll develop tools and we'll adapt because that's what we're good at as humans. We find ways to make it work and survive. So yeah, uh, I'm yeah. feeling positive about it, optimistic. Uh, but that being said, we, you know, it's not going to be easy for everyone. So, um, so Corey, I really enjoyed this conversation. I want to know if there's anything else I missed you want to talk about or tell the audience before we kind of wrap up here. Uh, no, but, uh, I just want to say, well, thank you uh, for the opportunity to talk about uh, the work. Thank you. Um, and um, it's, it's great to, to see uh, the success of the podcast. And I'm always happy to see um, more, more voices in the community and to, and to get the opportunity to hear more voices as well um, uh, through something like your podcast. If I have a, one message, it's um, go to Daml.com, Download the software development kit. Um, there's a great quick start. Build a, a simple chat application or other kind of application in Daml and really see how easy it is. Uh, not only to write a smart contract, but to integrate it with a React-based front end. Um, we've got a great tool to deploy it on um, uh, called Dabble, uh, which is you know, free. <laughs> so if you need to host and actually run your application um, in, in a prototype stage, it's incredible. Uh, but there's really no replacing for, for getting hands-on, even if you're not really a developer. Uh, you know, you don't have to understand functional programming or some of the deeper, uh, you know, parts of DAML uh, to, to begin to play with and sort of get an understanding of how it works and uh, why we're as passionate about it as we are. Um, so I highly encourage you to do it. And if you're in healthcare and you're interested in DAML or have worked with DAML, please reach out. I'd love to hear about your story and love to know what we can do to, to make your, um, your solution a success. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to health unchained on stitcher soundcloud google play and itunes join the health unchained community on our telegram group t.me slash health unchained if you enjoyed this episode tell your friends your bosses your teams your students to listen and subscribe thank you